Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Today we are discussing The Lost World, Jurassic Park. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan, once again, in the same room. Yes, we're actually together here discussing Jurassic Park 2 together. It is Alan's spring break, so it's mm-hmm. nice to be able to talk about this movie together. And it's also also the at the time of this recording, today is the day of the Oscars, so we're actually going to be watching the Oscars tonight together. And it's I didn't think we were going to get to do that, so that's a really cool surprise. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of Oscars, did you know this movie was an Oscar nominee? Really? Yes. The first Jurassic Park was nominated for three Academy Awards. Okay. This one got one for Best Visual Effects, but it lost to Titanic, and the other one nominated was Starship Troopers. Well, I can see why it lost to Titanic, because that one what, that one walked away with, I think, 11. It was massive. Yeah. At, that's one. I know it was Titanic, some other movie, and La La Land, which we talked about, which those three movies walked, have gotten... As many nominations as you, as I think, possible, which is 14, which is insane. So. Yeah. It's always interesting because I had no idea the first movie had three nominations and this one had one. So it's interesting when you find out, like, Rambo First Blood Part 2 was an Oscar-nominated film. Right. And it also was a Razzie-nominated film, Suicide Squad Oscar-nominated I know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I'm not comparing this movie to those movies, but it always is interesting to find out certain movies are actually Academy Award-nominated very, films. Yeah, very true. Like um, <clears throat> Boss Baby being nominated for Best uh, Animated Feature. <laughs> Strange things happen at the Oscars. Well, anyways, The Lost World came out, it was a summer release, May 23rd, 1997, a full four years later after the release of the first movie. And we do have Steven Spielberg back directing. He actually does star in the movie as the uncredited uh, man who, man-eating popcorn, that's it. That was his role. He was uncredited. I didn't catch it only when I was looking at the list. And maybe some of you might know Eli Roth. I don't think he's super famous, but he was also in this movie. Interesting. I guess. Yeah, I know I've heard that name. Uh, and yeah, it's not uncommon for a director to be this star in a very, very minor background role as an extra in his movies. Well, Jurassic Park wasn't totally Steven Spielberg's idea. It was based off of the Michael Crichton novel. Spielberg and Crichton were fairly good friends talking about it. And Crichton really had no desire to come back and write a sequel novel. But he received so much pressure from studios and fans They because Jurassic Park was a insane success. I mean, it grossed a billion dollars worldwide. Oh, yeah. And so, of course, a billion-dollar movie is not going to just stay that way. They're going to make a sequel to it. So Crichton was, like I said, pressured into it. He wrote The Lost World, uh, the sequel to Jurassic Park, which... If that sounds familiar to you, it probably should because it is based off of the the title comes from the 1912 Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, book of the same name. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle also wrote Sherlock Holmes, and there was a 1925 adaption of that movie. So The Lost World is a fairly kind of famous 
when you when you hear the lost world you think of dinosaurs um land of the lost was a show about people in a dinosaur land so clearly Crichton wasn't being incredibly original right. here and of course david coep who did write the first movie with Crichton, came back to write this and we should note Crichton just wrote the book he did not write the screenplay whatsoever he wrote the book he gave it to Spielberg like right when they started shooting or just like a couple months after shooting began. <laughs> and he's like, here, do what you want with it. So that is why this movie and book are pretty different. And it's interesting because in the first Jurassic Park book, don't worry, this isn't really a spoiler, but uh, the main character of Ian Malcolm supposedly died. Well, Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, is the main character of this movie. Right. So Crichton kind of did one of those retcons, and he's like, oh, he wasn't really dead. He's actually alive, and made him the lead of the book. And it's really weird because Ian Malcolm goes to the island, and he's trying to figure out how dinosaurs became extinct, and he's going to figure it out that way. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, there is kind of two competing factions there on the island vying for the dinosaurs or whatever. But that's pretty much where the similarities stop. Uh, as far as I could tell, um, this was mostly Spielberg and Coep's ideas. They really just kind of nitpicked certain things they liked. Otherwise, they came up with their own stuff for it. And this wasn't originally Spielberg's idea for a sequel he thought when he was shooting the first one he's like well if there is going to be a sequel it would involve the retrieval of the canister that contained the di dinosaur dna that was lost during the events of the first film he thought about that years back when doing it uh but like i said that didn't happen at all this movie stars jeff goldblum julianne moore pete postalweight vince vaughn arliss howard peter stormare Richard Schiff, Joseph Mazzello, Ariana Richards, Vanessa Chester, and Richard Attenborough. So a pretty big cast and a number of famous people who did go on to much more famous roles than this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny seeing Vince Vaughn in this movie. Um, I don't know. He's always been a very interesting actor. Uh, he does some really, he has done some really good stuff, but um, he was. He was quite interesting because this is really before his character exploded and he became a pretty big actor. Uh, this is right before that all happened. And of course, you got Julian Moore. And then, yeah, Jeff Goldblum's returning as Ian Malcolm again. So it, it's interesting to see one returning face, but no Sam Neill anywhere in this movie. That is interesting because Laura Dern and Sam Neill, easily the main protagonists of the first movie don't return we only by my count we only have four returning cast members which is jeff goldblum richard attenborough and his two grandchildren whose names are in there that i just read but i don't know which ones they are yeah and they all play a fairly minimum role except for jeff goldblum as right. the new star right it kind of i guess we'll get more into this a little bit later but it, i guess it more or less just introduces like gets you back into the groove of jurassic park like hey this is Jurassic Park, but not exactly the same as it was previously. The movie holds a 6.5 on IMDb, which is quite the drop from an 8.1. Quite the drop. 
Indeed. Because the last one, it, it was very close to an eight. Mm-hmm. And now we're nearing a six and a half. And I did say in, I think, our last podcast that typically about a six and a half on IMDb is when things begin to waver on good or bad. So it's pretty surprising coming off of one of, I, I would say, one of the most, in, one of the more influential films in cinema um, coming to the sequel, which is at least a few years later, not as regarded as the original. According to CinemaScore, the movie has a B plus. The very first movie, audiences gave it an A. Audiences gave this one a B plus, which really isn't too bad. I yeah. mean, it seems like audiences fairly enjoyed this movie, but clearly not as much as the first one. Right. I mean, yeah, that's not a bad drop, I would say. Not too terrible. The budget only increased surprisingly just by ten million dollars. So the budget was only seventy three million. Hmm. which is shocking, and they did an incredible job yeah. off of this kind of a budget. Oh, yeah. As for the domestic box office, it really didn't do too close to the numbers of the very first movie. Uh, not a small box office, nothing to thumb your nose at at all, but domestically it grossed $229 million. Uh, foreign, $389.5 million for a worldwide total of $618.6 million. Mm, just a few few dollars off of that $1 billion, um, from before. Yeah, about, you know, $400 million. <laughs> <laughs> but if you compare the numbers of the first movie, it did ha- almost half of what it did in the foreign markets. Like we said, worldwide, it's missing about $400 million. Um, domestically... It's, I don't know, 130 million off, it seems like, of what the first one did. And I believe that's kind of a problem when a movie takes so long to, when a sequel takes so long. Because, yes, the movie, the first one is, is incredible. Normally the sequel does gross more than the other one, but you need to kind of fast track it into production. Spielberg, was very hesitant about making a new one. He told Crichton, if you write a new book, I'll probably come on and direct it. Otherwise, I'm doing my own thing. He was taking a year off from directing. He was launching DreamWorks Studios. He was doing a lot of things on his plate. And a sequel to Jurassic Park wasn't really there. And so it took Crichton wasn't really jumping on it either. It was a really long time before Crichton wrote the sequel. He wrote it in 1994, and I believe it was published in... It was either published in 94 or 95. I mean, just right up against the movie. And so it it did take a while. But I should say that there was a massive uh, marketing campaign involved with this. Really? Uh, I believe the marketing campaign cost around $250 million. Wow. They had... Uh, Burger King toys, novels, comics, uh, I don't know, CDs, all kinds of tie-ins that you could possibly think of mm. to get people hyped up about a sequel to Jurassic Park. That I mean, I can see the idea behind that because the original was so successful. And then, of course, they want to make as much money as they possibly could when they make the sequel. So I, I see where they're going with this, but it looks kind of like it didn't completely pay off. It didn't, and of course, opening weekend, it was a massive opening and a massive success. It did help that it was Memorial Day weekend. Oh, yes. So, the movie grossed, it was number one opening weekend, 
it like had almost no competition at all, which mm-hmm. is just like the first one. So they're releasing it at really good times in the summer. This is a rare thing to happen summers nowadays yeah. because every single week there's a blockbuster coming out, especially in May. So the movie grossed about $72 million, just a million shy of its budget. But like I said, counting Memorial Day weekend, it grossed $90 million. Wow. Huge opening weekend. Yeah, that's pretty big. And compared to the first open, the first movie had an opening weekend of $47 million. Hmm. Yeah, it's nearly twice as much. Yeah, so it definitely, so it definitely made a bunch of money, but I guess maybe just not as much as they were expecting when it all was said and done. Right. It's normally a massive opening weekend, and then from there... It doesn't continue the yeah. hype like they would hope it did. Right. As for the trailer, I thought the trailer was awesome. It was a good representation of the movie. Tons of action. Really exciting. The only part I really didn't like was there was like thunderstorm text where it would say the tagline, something has survived. And it would be really scary with thunder and lightning and weird dark letters. And otherwise, putting that aside, yeah, I would definitely want to go see... This this is a much better trailer than they did with the first movie. So the marketing campaign really paid off. The thunder and lightning kind of making it out to to be a little more scary than it actually is. And it looks like with the new Jurassic World movie, they're really trying to go for that horror vibe again. As for the taglines of this movie, they are not the best, I would say. <laughs> uh, something Has Survived is kind of stupid because clearly we know dinosaurs survived like that wasn't even a question and it takes place on a totally different island so they're kind of conflating two different things that have nothing to do with each other right and the other one is they're walking our streets which is also misleading because that's plural and i don't want to give anything away towards the end of the movie just in case you haven't seen it we're not talking spoilers yet but both taglines are fairly poor. So. Right. Yeah. These are very interesting taglines. Um, I don't know. They don't feel like they're... They don't feel like... I feel like they could have done much better with these taglines and made the film... Express the film a bit better. But, okay. I mean, they're not... I guess they're not terrible. All right. Um, they, they were, they're serviceable. I guess I'll say that. And uh, compared to the other series, we're adjusting for inflation. This movie is the second highest grossing of the four so far, like I said, adjusting for inflation. And that it it barely made it to number two, but uh, that makes sense because usually the sequel is always a really highly grossing film. Right. Something interesting to note, Joe Johnston was offered to direct this movie but he declined and he went on to direct Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, I, I was just looking at the page for Jurassic Park 3 and I saw that Joe Johnston was, was, the, was the director. Uh, that's next time. But I, hmm, I guess I kind of wonder how different The Lost World would have been with him on, on the director's seat versus Spielberg. Yeah, I do wonder about that. Honestly, I think it would probably be worse because... Spielberg is incredible, especially with capturing that magic. But I'm going to reserve judgment because we're not reviewing Jurassic Park 3 yet. Right. That's next time. Yes. And like I did say, um, David Coop really did play a major role in bringing this movie to the screen because Spielberg was more insistent on having 
like I already referenced before, watching the 1925 film The Lost World than he was on having him read Crichton's novel, which, of course, Coeb also did. Uh, there was also something very interesting. Spielberg regretted excluding a scene from the script that would have depicted characters on motorcycles attempting to flee velociraptors, hmm. which is kind of a which happens in the novel. But this was kind of resurrected in the 2015 sequel, Jurassic World. Oh, okay, gotcha. I would about to say that motorcycle scene sounds like, especially with the Spielberg. Uh, the magic Spielberg touch. I feel like that would have been a, a sweet scene to, to have on the screen. We do get something somewhat similar, not with motorcycles, um, but pretty late into the into Jurassic Park yeah. 2 here. But that would have been really cool to see um, that scene. Of course, we do get something in Jurassic World. I do remember, I do remember seeing that. So, yeah, well, I mean, we'll get to that one in a couple of months, I think. Well, before I give the plot, I want to warn you right now, listeners, we are about to spoil the movie. So if you have not seen The Lost World Jurassic Park, go ahead and hit pause right now. Go ahead and watch it and then come back and hit play on the podcast because you don't want to have this movie spoiled for you. And we're about to spoil in three, two, one. Picking up four years where the last film left off, Dr. Ian Malcolm, reprised by Jeff Goldblum, is tasked by John Hammond, who is also reprised by Richard Attenborough, to travel to Isla Sorna, the second of two islands housing dinosaurs. Hammond explains Isla Sorna is where the dinosaurs were bred. Save for the raptors, I guess, in the first movie? Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking in that scene. And then the, and then the dinosaurs are transferred to Isla Nublar, the island in the first film. Malcolm is asked to simply take pictures in order to gain back the public's trust. See, after the harrowing events of the first film, Injun, now run by Hammond's nephew Peter, played by Arliss Howard, lied about the incident on the first island and took the company away from Hammond. Malcolm told the world what happened, but not many believed him. The only problem with John's plan is that Malcolm doesn't want to go back to face the dinos, which are roaming free on this new island. But Malcolm is coerced into going once he learns Hammond sent Malcolm's rambunctious girlfriend, Sarah Harding, played by Julianne Moore. Once on the island, Malcolm's crew soon realizes they're not alone because Injun has sent their own crew to capture the animals and bring them back to San Diego, where the company plans to open the Jurassic Park Amphitheater, which was already built by Hammond. In a series of stitched-together action scenes, both crews ultimately have to put their animosity aside and help each other escape the island. Back at San Diego, Peter has orchestrated a press-slash-business conference at night on the engine docks where he plans to unveil a live T-Rex. His plan goes dreadfully awry when the ship crashes into the dock and the T-Rex is loosed onto the streets of San Diego. Thanks to Sarah and Malcolm, they're able to coax the Rex back to the boat where Peter receives his comeuppance and is eaten alive. Safe and sound at home, Malcolm and Sarah sleep while Malcolm's daughter, Kelly, watches Hammond speak on the news about the necessity of letting the dinosaurs live and flourish safely alone on their island as credits roll. So, yeah, basically we're going back to Jurassic Park 1 in a lot of ways, it sounds like. It really is, and also, according to Crichton's book, like The Lost World, it was essentially a retread of mm -hmm. the first movie. A lot of similar plot points were yeah. just recycled in just put up with a different face. Right. Now this of course is not anything new. Um 
basically any series is going to have a certain formula to it. Uh, like you can take Indiana Jones, for example. There's a there's a formula to Indiana Jones, and once they try to deviate from that formula, and we got Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, bad things happen. Uh, so it, I mean, it, it is good to have some familiarity with the series as a whole, like Star Wars is a good example too. But at the same time, you also don't want to be exactly like everything else in the series. You don't. You want to. You want the movies to stand out in their own way, not be retreads, like you said. And we're starting on a whole new island. I. It does look different from the first island. I would say. Yeah. But I do kind of have a hard time keeping straight which one is which. Uh, Isla Sorna is the new island. It's 87 miles southwest of Isla Nublar. And I remember in the third movie, we also have another issue with the islands again. I can't remember which island they're on in the third movie, but I just remember, like, when I was younger, and even a little bit now, keeping which island which straight is a bit of a confusion because, I mean, I understand the first word, like, Isla is probably some word for island, and Sorna and Nublar are different. But, I don't know, I just have trouble keeping it straight. <laughs> yeah, see, I am glad that they did kind of differentiate between the two islands in this one. Because um, I think, I agree with you when you said that you can tell the difference between Ila Nublar and Ila Sorna in this one. Uh, I definitely got the difference in this one. But, yeah, I remember there being, I think, another island in the third one? Or they go back to one of them? I can't remember, it's been too long since I've seen it. But yeah, even I'm a bit confused just knowing that little knowledge in my head um, that there is that they do go to another to an island in the third one again. Uh, not entirely sure yet, and we'll get there next month as to if that's a retread of one of the other islands or if it's a brand new island. So yeah, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the new Ila Sorna theme in this movie, like the music? Oh. Well, I was fairly pleased with the score in this movie. The only part of the score I didn't really care for was the use of the bongos. Yeah. That got to be a little old, and it made me think... I put it somewhere down in my notes. I can't remember exactly what I said, but that got a little overused, I felt, if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, because we do get a new island theme in this one. In the first one, everyone knows that theme. Uh, the Jurassic Park theme when they enter the island. Right. Um, that's the island theme. This one, they get a new one. Um, it is... There's a reason why no one really remembers it. Um, it's not bad. We still have John Williams scoring this movie, but at the same time, it's just not as it's not as memorable as the original. And uh, there's nothing that you can really do to beat the original either, just because it is... The original score is just so great. Now, the score is pretty good, albeit not... I, albeit I'd say used too often, um, and I'll point out a couple of examples of what I mean by that later on into the review. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's not a bad score. I mean, it's John Williams, and he's still doing a great job, and he always has. But at the same time, I guess there are times where it's used inappropriately. Sure. And whereas in the original... It felt as if every time there was score in the movie, it was it felt appropriate, and that it enhanced the moment, not took away from it, which I think happens a couple of times in this one. Overall, though, not a bad score, but maybe just not the best implementation of it. The beginning of this movie, I think, is a really good hook because 
it starts with a little girl. And I should note, the beginning of this movie is actually the beginning of the very first book. But they felt that might be too dark of an opening right. or something. It, and it, I don't think it would fit with the tone of the first movie. But the problem is that tone isn't set up to begin with. That tone comes later. There's a tonal right. shift in the first movie. But this is a really good opening. Uh, it's It's pretty terrifying. This little girl is just really scared and attacked by all of these things and i'm hooked yeah i would agree with that i have a couple questions that are answered later um thankfully but the op- the opening you have a family of three a mom and dad and, and a little daughter and then you have like five sailors or there or five um butlers i guess because it's very clear that this family's rich right um and they just kind of sailed to this island just because they could and they're just kind of chilling on this island um, just because they can, you know, and we find out later that this is how the news got out. And this is why Hammond sending Malcolm there is to make it look better in, in the public's eye, because this family went there and their and word got out that, hey, wait a minute, there's another island, you know. Yeah, I do actually really enjoy this opening. It's it, it feels very Jurassic Park. Um, just because I know it's kind of similar to the original, too, because in the, in the original, the first thing we see is a dinosaur being transported in the park and then it breaks loose and um, we get to see the terror of what is going to happen later on in the movie. This one is kind of the same thing. Um, albeit I think that the original, the opening from the first one is a bit more effective. Although I do, do enjoy this opening and I love the cut that happens when the mom runs over and like, sees the child and she screams and then it cuts to Ian Malcolm yawning with the beach backdrop behind him in the subway. I think that's hilarious. That That is a great transition. It's yeah. a really great cut. And it's a little bit confusing what's going on with Ian Malcolm's character because people are staring at him. He's a little bit of a celebrity. There's a weird guy on the subway who is acting like everything that happened in the first movie was a lie. Everybody thinks he's a joke and whatnot. That was a little bit confusing, and we do get an explanation later when uh, Malcolm goes to Hammond's house, but it's kind of a bit of a drop line. Yeah. So we learned that Malcolm signed a non-disclosure agreement when he got on the island, so whatever happened there, he was legally bound not to speak a word of it, but he violated it, he got in trouble, and of course, Injun, who owns the island and, and everything, said, this guy is insane, none of this happened. And so we see already Injun is the evil bad guy with no morals, and it's a snotty British person. And yeah, essentially that's it. I do think it's a bit of it's a bit confusing if you're not paying yeah. attention really closely. Yeah, that's that's kind of a running thing in this movie too. Is that there, there seems to be a lot of information, a lot of information dumps at times in this yes. movie. You know in. To be fair, in the original, yes, that did also happen. There were information dumps, but at the same time, you could follow with you could follow with them very, very easily. Um, one of the most famous scenes, which I know, which I know we talked about extensively in the last podcast, was the dinner scene when um, when Hammond asks everybody at the table what they think of the island, and they all have they all give their opinions, and basically all say this is a bad idea, except for the investor. Um, so, or sorry, except except for the lawyer. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like that scene, but minimized into a few lines of dialogue 
And they, it feels like they just pick random points in the movie. Instead of, like, organically orchestrating all those scenes into the script like the original did, it feels like at times they just pick and choose the time and just go for it. And it comes off as a bit confusing, just like this scene we were talking about, um, where they where they reveal that Ian Malcolm has written a book, which you don't ever see. Right. And which I do think that that is why I've been always so confused watching sure. this in years past as to how, why in the world would Ian Malcolm go back to the island? I, I see it now because he published a book, which we, like I said, never see. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things. There are a couple of times in this movie where I'm, where I'm asking, why are we hearing this and not showing this? Also, somebody to point out is Ian Abercrombie, who plays Hammond's butler, and he is the voice of Palpatine Insidious in the Clone Wars cartoon. Interesting. Yeah, I did not. I did not know that. I spotted him right away. Wow. <laughs> For some reason, we see the two kids from the first movie. For literally no point at all. They are only in the movie for a couple minutes. They've grown up quite a bit. And they are super excited to see him, even though there really wasn't any relationship between them at all in the first movie. That's true. The girl, she's like, Dr. Malcolm, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. And super excited. I mean, clearly there's a connection. They both survived a traumatic experience, but they were really even on screen together. I right. was disappointed they brought the kids back. I remember when I was younger watching this movie, I liked seeing the kids, but now I'm disappointed that there's they've got nothing, they've got no role to serve at all except literally to say hi, stand in the background while Malcolm and Peter argue and then they're like, "Well, I guess we better leave because this is like they're arguing." And that's it. Yeah, I agree. I think I mean, I guess I can see why I mentioned this earlier. They're kind of reeling us in to this new Jurassic Park. And while at the same time still showing us that it's not exactly the same anymore. I Although I do wish that they would have implemented the kids in some kind of more, I guess, implemented the kids in a better way. Instead of just having them show up for a, a short scene and then that's all we see of them. Um, yeah, I mean... I wouldn't call them completely useless because it, it does help us kind of get into the groove. And tie back these characters. to the first. Yeah, yeah. But I do also agree with you. I wish they could have would have written them in better, I guess. And this is our first major kind of exposition dump of the movie. We are going to have a lot of these throughout the movie. And there's a lot of information. And they feel like the best way to relate that is literally... For Hammond, who looks sick to me because he's in his PJs and robe and in bed. So I always assumed he was like kind of on the verge of death. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And I'm pretty sure uh, Richard Attenborough died not too long Hmm. after this movie. I don't know the exact date. But this gets a little confusing. And I do think it's a kind of confusing character twist and... Uh, Malcolm brings this up. He says, you went from capitalist to, what does he say, like ecologist or something, all just about saving the planet, like, yeah, that it, quickly. Yeah, he says, um, you went from naturalist to capitalist. Yeah. I think is what he says. No, from capitalist to naturalist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is all we really get for John Hammond's character, except he comes back on the news at the very end of the movie for kind of a preachy little message there. And essentially, Hammond wants Malcolm to go to the island and just take pictures, which will help gain the public's tr- belief that there are dinosaurs and they need to be left alone. 
that doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how that would work. That that's I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This is kind of where this is kind of where the movie begins. I guess I would say this is where the movie starts to begin its trek of confusion. Um. And plot points that could make sense, but in the, how the movie is implementing them doesn't really make sense. You're right. Um, John Hammond, for some reason, really wants him to go to Site B, which is where we find out that he uh, grew most of the dinosaurs. No, that's where he began the expedition and essentially birthed all the dinosaurs. But then in the first one, we also have them being birthed in the laboratory. That's a retcon. Okay. That's what I was thinking it was. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so... It, it feels like we're taking a step backwards yeah. from the lessons learned in the first one, which is not great. I mean, yeah, sure, we have a. it could also be a retcon as well, but it's just confusing, I guess. Well, um, I, yeah. I got to say this is a weak, fairly weak setup. Oh, yeah. For a plot, because it's really not that compelling. And even Malcolm realizes that. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm not going back there. I'm sorry you're in this predicament but it's not my problem i mean you got in there the only thing that i do think makes this interesting is when hammond's like well i got to your girlfriend first sorry that you two are dating but she's the best at what she does she's on the island alone right now and of course i love i do actually really love um ian's emotions in this because he seemed very emotionally distant especially when it came to relationships in the first movie but i would say his emotional his emotionality is believable in this movie. And I was like, okay, I can cling to that. I can invest in that right yeah. there. I will say this. Um, I don't think I necessarily agree with you on that part. I think that in my opinion, he sent the girlfriend, Sarah, there alone, which I think was a really stupid idea because it is an I one four of dinosaurs and you're, and you just sent a one person alone to the Island, which I mean, yeah, you're right. She is the best at what she does, and that's fine. And it's just coincidence that not only does Malcolm have a girlfriend, but that the girlfriend that he has is now on uh, Ila Sorna. So for me, I feel like this is a kind of a weak setup in my eyes just because it doesn't feel organic like the original. It feels like we're being forced into the situation versus the original where the characters made a choice to go to the island because that's super cool that you actually have dinosaurs, you know, and stuff like that. Whereas this one is very much like, Oh, by the way, you sent your girlfriend there. Uh, I need you to go too. Mm-mm. So I guess I'm, can you run this by me again? Why is Malcolm, what does Malcolm have to go? Not, in, not because of his girlfriend, but there's a reason the film brings it up. And I, I maybe I heard it wrong, but do you, do you know that reason? The real only reason Malcolm does decide to go to the island is because Sarah is there alone. He knows how horror, like three people died in the first movie. He knows how horrible it is. That's the only reason he goes. Right. Just to save Sarah. Mm. That's, that's it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, Hammond does send people with him, Vince Vaughn and the other guy. Their job is to just take pictures, literally just to take pictures. And we learned that Vince Vaughn's character also um, is kind of a saboteur to sabotage the other camp that will come eventually. Uh, but that that's basically it. Okay. That's it, right. honestly. Yeah. It's not very deep, but I do kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, so far we're already – we can tell this movie is not going to be very deep with the characters <laughs> and motivations. Yeah. 
but I'm going with it. Yeah, I'll, part. I'll take the opposite end. I'm not entirely buying this. Um, retcons, I guess, are uh, uh, they are all over the place in this movie, it sounds like. Um, I'll just, in my own opinion, I think that this is kind of a weak, weaker setup than, I guess, the, than versus the original, which is very, very strong. So the the relationship I do like in this movie is between uh, Ian. I called her Lex a bunch. I forgot that was <laughs> Lex is the girl in the first movie. Yes. Hammond's granddaughter. So I'm going to try not to say Lex. It's Kelly. Right. Okay. So I do like the relationship between Ian and Kelly. Yeah. That's probably my favorite relationship in this whole movie. I can agree with that too. I do think that they have a pretty good relationship because of how broken it is. Um, yes, but you can still see there's something there because yeah. it's like, I'm really trying. She's like, you took me along on this. They've got really great chemistry, I would say. Yeah. They got great dialogue between each other. And we do learn that she is a gymnastics girl. Got some foreshadowing there. And that she was cut from the team. Pretty heavy-handed foreshadowing. Yeah. And we do meet the Vince Vaughn character. And I don't even know what the other guy's name is. The George Costanza wannabe. Yeah. He's like, I guess, a fairly famous person probably, and I just put him down, but sorry. Yeah. I'm going to say this. Um, this does occur also later. One of my bigger problems, too, is names. I know Ian Malcolm. I know Sarah. I know John Hammond. And that's really about it. Because I say um, it a bunch. Yes. Those they, names. They say, well, yeah, not, not just that, but two of those three characters that I named off were in the original. And, yeah. and so I already know those people's <laughs> names. Um, yeah, they're pretty forgettable. Yeah, they're yeah that too, and the fact that they never say their names hardly in this movie, except for maybe once or twice. I do right. remember Kelly's name, but only after you said it. <laughs> um, so I, they have a problem both with characters and with names here, because I don't remember any any of these characters. Um, well, I remember the characters. I don't remember the names. Right. Oh, um, yeah. I I know Vince Vaughn. It's I believe it's Nick and Eddie. Yeah. I believe so, but that took a little bit of reaching and yeah. <laughs> remembering yeah. to get there. I uh, only remember Vince Vaughn's character because it's Vince Vaughn. I know him. I don't know the other guy. I can't remember his name. I just put, I think I put dude in my notes for him. <laughs> so, yeah, I normally relegate, when I can't remember characters, I just call them by their descriptions. Like yep. Peter, Peter Hammond, I called him snotty British glasses guy. <laughs> Yep. That's how I, until I finally got Peter figured out. Right. Uh, we also learn about the high hide foreshadowing pretty on the nose there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all, uh, I guess a fine setup and they're traveling to the island. We learn the island chain. We do see a map. They're all Isla something or other. There's five of them. Right. It's called the island of the five deaths, which leads me to believe these the dinosaurs have like traveled to other islands or there are sea creatures in these islands because they're like the fishermen just got close and they died and right. that could be pterodactyls as well. But this seems to be kind of a setup for later movies because they're like, oh, there's more islands. Like this movie already tells us why are they going to go ahead and tell us there's like f- five islands or something. Right. I do think this is a pretty good setup for more Jurassic Park movies is now dress- now the dinosaurs are not only taken over two islands because John Hammond place them there but now they have taken over the whole isle of the five deaths i think that that's a pretty good setup for a Jurassic park movie or Jurassic park series i guess sure um yeah i think it is very interesting um one of the things because later in the movie we do see uh we do see the island 
in the very end and we see a pterodactyl and I'm it leads me to wonder are they going to fly off and reach one of the big mainlands I mean to be fair they are like in the very middle of the ocean these these islands are but it does kind of raise that question like you just said too are they moving to these to these other, other islands and also um bringing other people or other dinosaurs there as well who knows I'm a little surprised that that wasn't a concern mm-hmm. at all because we know these islands are pretty close to yeah. the coast of California. And, yeah, it wouldn't be too much of a flight for a pterodactyl. I mean, the pterodactyl doesn't... It would go to the island chain, but I don't think it would have much of an incentive to just fly across to the mainland. But that still is definitely a concern that is not addressed in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I've got a question for you. Okay. When... We finally meet Sarah, and Sarah is like, hey, Nick, hey, Eddie. Like, they're these best of pals this whole time. That always threw me off every time I watched the movie. Because my impression was that uh, Ian met Nick and Eddie for the first time. Right. Right when they were all setting up their equipment back in the warehouses or whatever. But then it's like, oh, wait, they're all friends? And they've known each other for a while? Or maybe just she did? How they all know each other is not really explained very well. Very confusing. I I totally agree. Um, it kind of makes me feel as if we're on the outside looking in for half of these characters. Yeah. Versus getting to know them, like I said, organically, like in the original, where they all meet. Everyone in the movie meets for the first time. And this one, I guess Ian Malcolm, but he's also um, the boyfriend to Sarah, so they already have that connection. Um, so I don't know it, I mean, not, not totally, but I do kind of feel like we're on the outside looking in, in, in these characters. I do think that they get along pretty well and have some pretty good, pretty good chemistry. They are really the only characters that I ever, that I remember from this movie and take away from. Um, so I guess in that sense, the movie works, but I agree. Kind of confusing. I do like some of the dialogue in this movie or the one-liners where Nick is like, Sarah, Sarah Harding and... Ian Malcolm's like, how many Sarah do you think are on this island? Yeah. And when she goes up to pet the clearly animatronic dinosaur <sighs> and she like runs out of film or something, it's messed up. And uh, Malcolm says they get very angry when you run out of film. Mm-hmm. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Although the jammed camera sets off the the baby Toronto yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah. The... the the camera, the jammed camera sets off the uh, baby dinosaur, and that sets off the entire pack. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we also learned that Sarah has a lucky backpack. Let's remember that yes. for a future movie. Yes. That's all I'm going to say. Or future events. Right. Uh, <laughs> also, I thought it was really dumb when the dinosaurs get mad with Sarah so she heads right into the trifecta of them yeah. instead of running back the other way. And I'm like, oh, maybe she's drawing them away. It still seemed really stupid. And she gets her like little action moment where she ducks under the tail and runs around. And I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like she's interacting with nothing. Like you can kind of tell a little bit. Yeah. But uh, just this. Uh... Yeah, I agree. This doesn't look too great. Um, You can tell. That Sarah is just kind of dancing around with nothing in front of her. Like you can, you can tell that that's what's happening here. When she ducks underneath the tail, it's it's very telegraphed. 
Yeah. I don't know. It's pretty good duck. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think the animation is nearly as good in this one as it was in the, in the first one. Um, I say that because there are a lot more CG shots in this one. Oh, tons of CG. Yeah. And in the original, there were CG shots, and you could tell when there were some, oh, but yes. they were used scarcely, and they were used believably. And this one, they kind of take the liberty of showing a lot more with both animatronics and the computer-generated images, so it kind of pulls away, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. So I was pretty disappointed with, when we first see the animatronic, I was like, this is definitely an animatronic. Yeah. And the CGI is fine. I would say they have somewhat improved on the CGI in this movie. With some areas, now by today's standards, it's like, that's clearly CGI. Yeah. I will say, when they are releasing the dinosaurs in the camp, those animatronics were pretty good, actually, I thought. Uh, that's probably because it was it was dark. Yeah. It was lower lit. They didn't focus on them too much. And that's what they did with the first one with the animatronics, like with the raptors and stuff. They didn't linger on them. And right. I was really surprised. I was hoping for something a little bit better. But... Like I said, the CGI, I think, is, for the most part, an improvement yeah. over the first movie. Yeah, I'm taking the more opposite end. I think that I think that it's good. It's good CGI in that uh, it looks... I think they move a bit more lifelike than they do in the original. I'll, I'll say that. Um, I think that just the implementation of the CGI is not nearly, I guess, as smart as the original, where it, it yes. blurred the line of reality. I can I can see that. Yeah. Well, so far, I think these characters are kind of fun, but I also find them slightly annoying, especially Sarah. Her character just grates on my nerves. Mm -hmm. She, well, first of all, her her goal is really stupid, I think, because she's trying to change people's views of dinosaurs. I'm like, you know what? Nobody cares. Dinosaurs have been extinct for like a gajillion years. And she's like, they get a really bad rap for being, like, evil lizards that just kill people. And I'm like, this is dumb. I, I really didn't find that compelling. And she's a total know-it-all, and she has no healthy fear for the situation. It's like, are you kidding me? Yes. Okay, Laura Croft, you can yeah. just do everything. We get it. <laughs> I don't like it. And we also learned the daughter has stowed away, which I think does add a element of conflict that mm -hmm. was probably seriously needed in this movie and i already said i liked that i liked it between ian and malcolm yeah or no ian and kelly <laughs> ian and malcolm <laughs> ian and himself <laughs> i will say i don't buy ian and sarah's relationship really yeah um i'll kind of go through uh, parts of what you said um i do like that kelly is on the island um one we kind of it's kind of the same thing with sam neil and then uh him and his two kids where Sam Neill was just like, I don't want kids. And then this one, you have Ian Malcolm, which who really didn't want a kid either, but ended up, oops, having a kid. Um, I think it is kind of silly that she sneaks on and arrives there and just nobody notices. Um, but yeah, I do agree with you when you said that the relationship between Sarah and Malcolm is not very believable. I think that that's very true. They don't have... I, I think it's just the chemistry, honestly. They don't. I don't think that. Oh, there's like no chemistry. Yeah, I don't think that Julianne Moore and 
um, Jeff Goldblum really connect very well in this movie. The chemistry just isn't there. There isn't something that's, that is definitive proof that they were in a relationship. It feels like they're just, I don't know, exes almost, which they are not, which they totally are not. No. Because that's the whole reason why Ian Malcolm is there. Yes. Um, so that's, I don't know. It kind of is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's making me wonder, are they actually in a relationship? Which I really shouldn't be wondering. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, they're total opposites. And it's kind of funny because she, in some ways, acts how he used to act. But being in the situation of the last movie really caused him to grow up, be more responsible, and just have, like, a healthier respect for things. I do find it a little, no, I find it a lot annoying that he had this traumatic, horrible experience where three people died and she is just totally writing it off. Yeah. Like they're in a very similar situation. He's like, and he told this to Hammond. He said, you want us to go there and there's no cages now. There's no fences at all. And Sarah is just like, oh yeah, it's no big deal. I hang out with the T-Rexes. I, this and that. It's, It's just like. Uh, you are such a one-dimensional character <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah i mean i'm like i guess it's working because i feel the same way as ian right i feeling. i honestly think that uh ian's character should have done more to try and get them off the island because it feels like he's saying stuff without actually doing stuff right he's just like oh we have to get off this island and then his girlfriend just bosses him around and he doesn't do anything to stop it and it is very clear, and we all know that Ian Malcolm was in the first one, and we know what happened in the first one, and that's the reason why he was against going, like, completely against going to this island anyways. And for whatever reason, every time Ian Malcolm talks, everyone just blows him off. Yeah, pretty much, including his daughter, which yeah. gets a little annoying. But I do like how everybody is like, oh, what, it's not a big deal. And then they get into these you know, deadly, horrifying situations. Right. Like, okay, good. Now you finally understand. This isn't just play pretend and a joke. But I do kind of find it interesting how Ian plays a somewhat substantial role for the half of both the first and second movie. And then once we get to that halfway mark, he kind of just recedes into the background. Right. And... Uh, in the first one he's injured so he has to just lay there and it's not really about him anymore and in this one he's just it's just like oh we're too worried about everybody else anyway right they should have done a lot more with malcolm's character especially because that's how they set it up and like you said nobody listens to him even though he's been in the situation before right and like it just gets a little frustrating yeah i'm gonna say this i don't like malcolm's character nearly as much as i liked him in the first one um, I think they kind of make him a wimp in this one, and it's kind of sad because he was awesome in the original. <laughs> he was so cool and stuff, and I know that me and uh, Thomas had kind of gushed about his character. I think actually all three of us gushed about his character a little bit back in the original, in the first review. This one, I feel like they, I don't know if it's a retcon or if they were just, or that they just decided to write him this way or what happened, but he doesn't feel nearly as cool as he did in the original, like cool and smart and always going against the man, you know, all that kind of stuff. And this one, he's trying to take charge, but can't for some reason. Um, and I get that. Yes, he had that tremendous experience with the last park, but at the same time, though, it feels like he is a wimp. And this one. Well, I would say he's much more like um, Dr. Grant in the first movie. Yeah. Where he kind of has to take the more skeptical role and 
fatherly role with you know his daughter like grant was with the kids so instead of really keeping malcolm on the trajectory that he was i mean i do think we needed some maturity with his character which we did get but yeah i think we both agree he really needed to be doing a lot more yeah in this movie and kind of going off of that um it's very clear that malcolm in this movie is not good with technology (laughs) every time something modern is put in his in his face he either breaks it or doesn't know what to have how to operate it you know and this movie kind of goes definitely for that modern technology thing like um in this movie that modern technology theme because we definitely see you know more state-of-the-art equipment being used in this in the rv that they bring with them uh engine is using all of the newest equipment to try and capture these dinosaurs and it's kind of funny that ian malcolm in his ignorance doesn't know what to do with all this and then when the movie gets into the thick of it the modern technology the modern technology doesn't matter and it's just them trying to fight for the survival and all that new stuff is just basically gone and they have to just go back to uh their roots of nature i think it's kind of interesting that they brought that theme into this movie what do you mm-hmm. think yeah i definitely noticed that because they do play they do really showcase you know they got the latest vehicles helicopters all kinds of different machines and uh eventually they see that that really does them no good yeah at all and it's more of kind of they have to go back to the stone age with certain very primitive tools in order to get out of there they must become more physical and primal themselves with combating these creatures and you think like being in these big rvs would keep you safe but it's actually very deadly and it's it's not good at all and i do kind of want to say i kind of have an issue that they parked them on a cliff because <laughs> yeah. that's just clear setup for something bad to happen where it's like really why did why did you park on a cliff yeah, yeah. anyways yeah we'll we get, get we'll get to that scene a bit later but yeah i agree we'll get there yeah i do really like roland timbo who was played by Peter Postal Wade or whatever his name yeah. is. So you're going to have to remind me who this is. He is the bald guy. He's the hunter. Okay. That wants to hunt the Rex. I really like him. That's right. He's the one that he, I don't know. He really seems like he's having fun in the movie. Yeah. He is always taking charge of the situation. He knows what he's doing. I really liked his character is one of the highlights yeah. of this movie, I think. And I've always, I've always liked this actor in anything I've seen him in. He played um brother Gilbert. Yeah. In Dragonheart. Which was also nominated for Best Visual Effects like a year or two before. Interesting. Just interesting. Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, if you noticed, I forgot his name. <laughs> uh, I think that kind of goes, although I did like his character, um, I kept getting him confused with the other guy that's uh, also on Injin. Anjay? I think so. I put that in my notes too every time I've watched this movie. Or, no, I always got Andre and um, Peter because they have very similar glasses and shaped heads. I think it may have been all three of them, actually, yeah, for me. Those get really confusing. Yeah, they all kind of look somewhat similar. Um, I know I could kind of pick out Rola and Timbo here because he's bald. Mm-hmm. Um, but all no these glasses. kind of guys, yeah, all these kind of guys, they look somewhat similar. I do, I will agree with you, I do think his character is good. Um, I guess my only problem is I wanted. Um, a bit more of a definitive character out yeah. of him. And that's kind of why I, I keep forgetting his name, partly because I'd never say it. Um, but yeah, I do like his character. He does go through an interesting arc, which I liked. 
Oh, yeah. And um, I liked seeing him. I do think, I, like what you said, he is very much a character who takes charge when he needs to. And he's basically the control head for Injun being on the island. Yes. And the only fish issue I have is with the introduction of his character because he negotiates his terms with Peter right there while they're driving. Like, And it's a pretty fun scene where they are chasing down dinosaurs, capturing, I don't know, it's kind of probably like every little boy's dream of playing dinosaurs and capturing them and whatnot and to see that come alive is pretty cool yeah but it really doesn't make sense when he's just saying like i'm in charge and if you don't like that then i'm gonna leave right now and these are all of my terms and conditions i know we never talked about them until right now Mm -hmm. and i was like okay i know we need some exposition for his character but it's unrealistic and unnecessary because we will get that later on this is how he acts we don't need him to just Turn around and literally tell us. I think another problem with this scene that I have with the introduction of Injun, it's long. It's and long, yeah. a bit too long. <laughs> because, like, okay, it's fine to see, to show them, you know, driving down uh, the plateau and uh, capturing these dinosaurs. That's fine. But they keep it going for, like, longer than you would, longer than I think we should have, it should have been. I think it should have been edited down a bit. Because it's very much a montage of them just uh, circling these dinosaurs and then taking them down and caging them. Yeah. Um, which is fine. And we do see that the, we do see these dinosaurs, they are freed in a, I think in pretty close. I think it's the yeah, next scene actually. Yeah, right after this. Yeah. So I get the significance of the scene. I think they really could have cut it down because it's very clear. I think that it's very clear that what these guys, their objective is to be there. Um, they also say it four more times in the movie. Um, yeah, I think the scene could have been cut down. I, I don't think it needs to be this long. Uh, what did you think of the our protagonist's expressions when they see the dinosaurs being captured? They're like all laying back, and it cuts to each of their faces, real somber music. What What did you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't really feel very genuine. Um, no, it's really melodramatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't feel very genuine. Um, I also kind of want to know what did they do all day because. It kind of sounds like they were just sitting and watching Engine do their stuff and not doing anything about it because they don't really do anything until this scene. I don't know. Then when they get to the night scene when they're when they built the camp and everything, and we see all of the reactions from all the scenes. It, I don't know. It's I just have problems with this scene just in general. This montage scene. Oh sure, and it doesn't really get any better because we get a bunch of foreshadowing of this guy, this idiot guy who shocks the little lizard from the or dinosaur from the first movie. Right. Clearly, they're going to come back and get him later, which I would say when he is eaten up later, very reminiscent of when um, Wayne Knight's character from the first one is attacked oh, yeah. by that spinning dinosaur. Yeah. There's some very similar moments in this movie. Uh, I will say I feel like this movie is moving fast because, I mean, we're in. We are we're we got on the island really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we did. Even though there is lots of exposition, it's not like really setting up anything because we already saw the the kind of build up to the dinosaurs. They're just like dinosaurs. Here we go. Yeah, let's do it. Even though nothing's very clear, and from here on out, it's just going to be kind of like, what's the point? Yeah, I anything. totally agree. Um, the original it kind of built up to the dinosaurs, whereas this one has a really quick build up and goes, okay, well, you, you already know what's, what's happening. So they just drop you right into the, right into the thick of it, which I do enjoy because we don't wait around and talk about stuff like the original does. 
Not to say that the original is bad or in any way, because at, at the very least, the original has some really interesting and thought-provoking dialogue. This one um, kind of skips off on some of that dialogue and kind of drops you into the middle of it, which is good for the most part. Um, I think that unfortunately does kind of lead into some pacing issues because we have, like I, like I mentioned earlier, some scenes that just dump exposition onto you and then some scenes that kind of go by slower, which could have been cut, I feel. And then we have an action scene or two in, in between there. It, it, I don't know. It For me, it's just kind of inconsistent at times with the pacing and in terms of delivering information to the audience. Um, I, I do think, though, that... Uh, like you said, I do like that we kind of just don't really talk about the dinosaurs and the ethics behind it like we did in the original. We already have that, so we're just going to drop you right into everything. Yes, my problem is this: like the progression of the plot doesn't feel organic. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm. That's kind of what I was feeling too. Is just the inconsistent tone or the inconsistent pacing. It right. doesn't feel organic, like you said. Well, and of course we get Peter filming a little video for these business people. I don't, that's really not explained very well at all. Yeah, yeah. All that you need to know is he's like, Hey, we built Peter, or not Peter. Um, John Hammond built literally a Jurassic park theme park in San Diego. I don't know why. I don't know when I don't really understand because it's there, but it's not totally finished. And clearly the theme park was going to be in the first movie. Ah, a lot of this really doesn't make sense. And this is just to set up the end of the movie. Right. And like I said, everything is explained to us in this movie. Literally everything. Choices don't make sense. The plot really doesn't make sense. There's really no organic progression. It's just everything is so contrived. And there's just like these scenes and they have no idea how to make the movie flow, which... I don't know, it's really weird and confusing because it's the same creators, it's the same creative team from the first movie, and right. uh, I don't know, to me this is just like one of those things where it's like, the movie made so much money, let's do another one, and they're like, we have no idea what to do. Right. And they're like, okay, just make something up. Make it, lots of action, lots of explosions, lots of dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> It'll be and great. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I And kind of going back to what I said earlier, I this movie kind of feels like a step backwards. Um, because in the first one, we talked a lot about, um, the ethics behind genetic messing with genetics and why that's a terrible idea because us as humans don't know a thing about this kind of power and how to control it and stuff like that. And it's very clear. And the, the original does show this, that with that kind of a power, things so easily get out of hand and it's because nature is not really bound by the rules of humans as much as we'd want them to be. This one is kind of the same thing, but instead of talking about genetics and really diving deep into that more focused storyline, it kind of goes for a more broader approach where it says, well, we just shouldn't mess with animals just in general in their natural habitats, because if we do, then they're not in their natural habitats anymore, even though we're going there just to observe and document, which is why they sent... Um, which is why they sent Malcolm and crew there in the first place, just so that way they can get, they can record things before Engine shows up and then takes all the dinosaurs. It's very clear, and of course it moves on from there and things just go awry and it, it doesn't work out because of modern technology, all that stuff. It doesn't really work because it's not nearly as focused as the original one was. The original was so focused on this idea of messing with genetics and why we shouldn't do it 
it made the film very engaging and very thought-provoking. This one tries to, but takes a way more broader theme of that messing with uh, nature just in general, you know, and I don't think it completely fits in this movie. I mean, it's interesting at points, but not nearly as thought-provoking or engaging as the original, which I think is a big minus. Right, and we get that kind of early on, and Malcolm is super surprised because Hammond has gone from this total capitalist who wants to clone animals, exploit it for his own profit, essentially. And, of course, he does kind of want to create something real for himself, but it's, it's, I don't know, it's not very generous. And then all of a sudden he is like, I'm all about saving the planet, saving the animals, and we get a really preachy kind of almost political thing. At the very end of the movie we'll talk about, Yeah, but I 100% agree with you. All right, they release the animals, and they find this T-Rex baby that is hurt. But taking the T-Rex baby is stupid. Why would they do this? And, I don't understand. Okay, Sarah calls it out. She's like, are you insane? Yes. Of course, Nick doesn't know the first thing about dinosaurs, but apparently Sarah does. But she still goes along with it because I think she's just this conceited hotshot who thinks she can do anything. Yes. Which ends up nearly costing them all of their lives and nearly makes kelly an orphan uh, or not totally i mean she has a mom yeah i, I think yeah, no i think her mom ran away well yeah i do believe her mom Pretty dropped her off is what happened so she could go to paris yes uh this i'm like okay i understand they're setting it up for like a big scene but once again it's really stupid and it's not organic and i don't understand why the t-rex baby doesn't try to bite them i guess it kind of does eventually Kelly gets really scared, and she throws out this really cheesy line. She's like, I want to be somewhere safe. I want to be somewhere high. And I'm like, oh, really? What gave you that thought? The screenwriter, maybe? Maybe just so we can have her out of the danger. In Don't get it out of sight, out of mind, you know? Uh, I totally agree with you. Um, it is this is really stupid to set up to this <laughs> T-Rex scene. I get it. The ignorance of Vince Vaughn's character and bringing the, the, the baby T-Rex back to the RV to help him out. I understand that part. I think that they should have let the T-Rex go just like uh, Sarah had said. And then, of course, once the two T-Rexes come into play, Ian Malcolm is like, okay, I need to get down there and warn them. And now right. he's in the situation. It, I don't know. It kind of feels forced. This scene, as cool as it is, it doesn't, like you said, doesn't feel organic. Because, okay, in the original, in the first one, we we talked about the T-Rex scene extensively and how amazing it was. Oh, yeah. Because of Spielberg's use of information setup, which we know, as which, is we, which we've come to know in both of these movies, that he reveals information to you a piece at a time. And in this one, it does do that, yes, but it's not nearly as effective. And I think that that really kind of botches this scene, which could have been as intense as the original one was because now we have two t-rexes in a giant rv not one t-rex and two cars right and when we do hear the t-rex yell i was like wow okay that's amazing mm -hmm. that strikes fear i laughed with glee i was really excited about this because finally we're getting we're getting something that is actually putting the characters in danger like the first movie there's actually little stakes yeah for once it's not just, you know, ha, ha, yay, easy, whatever. You get what I mean. Right. But, like, taking the T-Rex as an organic, parking on the edge of a cliff, especially when it gets muddy, 
it just it just feels so forced. Just like okay, we have to have this setup to make it as intense as it needs to be. And I don't think, and the, I think also my biggest issue too, along with all this, is the use of the music in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is where I have a big problem with the music. It makes the scene worse, in my opinion. <laughs> and as much as I, I mean, don't get me wrong, it is good and engaging music, and I I, I do enjoy it, but it is used at an inappropriate time in, in this part of the movie. This scene should have been musicless. There should have been no score underlying this scene because in the original, that was one of the things that made it so intense was that there was no music and it was just the rain and the roar from the dinosaur and, and stuff like that. It was very natural sounding. This one does not feel that because we're missing, we're, we have now music in the background, which is supposed to, usually supposed to heighten the tension, but in this one it it doesn't do that. It doesn't grab the scene like it was supposed to. I, I don't know. It doesn't really fit, I suppose. The scene doesn't really fit together as perfect as it did in the original, which is sad because I I would love this scene to be amazing, but it, it's eh, you know. Oh, I totally, I totally agree. Yeah, I do like, though, the tension between Kelly and Ian when he says, I'll be right back. I give you my word. She says, you never keep your word. That was a great line yeah. and a great moment that um makes sense from his character in the first movie and the setup before and i think that's relatable especially to like a younger audience who would be afraid for their parent going off into this scary situation and when they're like i'll be back i promise it's like you can't really promise that right that's really dangerous and okay i i have a lot of notes over this t-rex scene yeah i don't want to go over every single one of them some of the highlights i noticed in this scene i do feel like sarah this is kind of when she finally figures out a fear of dinosaurs that it's actually scary even though she laughs like a maniac after they release the baby dino out there yep and okay uh, it doesn't really make sense why the t-rexes would leave and then come back I understand yeah. they're trying to rid the island of their invaders, which I figured out, but the screenwriter conveniently tells me later. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense why they would leave and then come back. And that's happens so often where yeah. the T-Rexes come, and they're conveniently gone, and then they come back. But then they're gone again right at the right times when we need certain characters to come back. And I know I talk about that later. But so far, this is probably my favorite part of the movie. It's fairly intense, although I will say it goes on a little long for me. And it's just like kind of almost like a little over the top with one thing after the other where uh, I don't know. And I just put it like right here in my notes. Honestly, the plot is we're an hour in and nothing has really happened. I don't feel any sort of arc or progression, really. It's just scenes action scenes dinosaur scenes i don't i've got as you can see i've got a ton of notes so i'll let you say some more yeah and yeah i think the tension does begin to rise when the first half of the rv falls off of the cliff and it's just hanging on by the second half on the top that the t-rex has just decided to push off for whatever reason um yeah it doesn't make any sense why they just leave and come back i i don't get that although i do like it when uh Sarah kind of follows and then hits the glass, you know, yep, and then good. that begins to, and the glass behind her, again, below her begins to crack. 
Um, I guess we don't know that displacing your weight would help with that. But anyways, that is a fairly intense scene. And what saves her, of course, is the Lucky Pack, which for some reason keeps coming back in this movie. I, I, I don't get the MacGuffin. Um, I'm going to throw it out now. There is a Lucky Pack in the next one, and it comes up a lot. And it's a major MacGuffin plot point. Okay. I think I remember that. Part. I don't know why we need two Lucky yeah. Packs. I don't get the... I, oh, I do remember it in the third one now. Yep. I remember it. Um, yeah, I don't understand the significance of the lucky pack. Maybe just a character trait, but in that case, why is it not written better into the plot? Anyways, then, of course, um, the guy also hanging up in the right. thing in the... I hide. Yeah, the hide. He comes down and he brings his Jeep in and the, he tries to somehow pulls up the RV from... Part of the the RV from the cliff... I, I I don't understand that at all, but I'll whatever I guess. Well, there's some issues because I put in my notes. It's really convenient how there are roads to drive through in this jungle, and I put right here the music during the scene is funny. It's like uh, Moroccan bongos or yeah. something, and yeah. I. Uh, so you see what I meant? Yeah, the the music is pretty silly. Yeah. Um, I also find it weird. That the Universal or whoever made a deal with Mercedes, these kind of Jeep-esque... They're not really Jeeps at all. They're just these weird little SUVs. They're weird. I don't know why Mercedes would want to put this in here because it doesn't make their car look very good. Yeah. I mean, it like kind of like pulls it back, but it doesn't really do much. And I'm like, they need something way heavier and beefier than a Mercedes. Uh, it doesn't really work. Uh, like I said, it's an exciting scene. Goes on for a long time. Uh, the CGI Rexes are back for whatever reason. I put so many times in the scene. The Rexes leave and come back, yeah. leave and come back, and the CGI is kind of meh for them. I think the animatronics look great, and especially when we are introduced to them, was pretty a good idea because they're looking the wrong way. They're behind them, mm -hmm. and yes, we kind of have a bit of a duex engine i guess well, not machina because engine conveniently comes to save them oh something i also need to say is there's a moment of comedy in this scene oh oh i know what you're talking about oh it doesn't work at all because no. he's like do you guys need anything else for whatever reason like they have time for that and they're like i want a hamburger pickles on mine no cheese please yeah <sighs> Okay, they went from, like, scared for their lives. I mean, just, like, horrified, scared to death. They're about to die. And then all of a sudden, they're just, like, cracking jokes. Yeah. This is <sighs> kind of what I meant when I said totally inconsistent at times. This is a big This is a big example of them just being, like, in this big danger. And then just out of nowhere and for the most inappropriate time, just like, oh, yeah, I want a cheeseburger. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't, it does not work for me. And in fact, this is kind of one of the points where I was like, eee, I cringed when the <laughs> scene came up, which is not good. Not good. Oh, sure. And I'm still very frustrated that the movie explains everything to me that I can already figure out on my own. Now we figure out the two parties finally come together. They're stranded. And honestly, I feel like we're finally getting a purpose or plot or arc, whatever you want to call it, to this movie. And it took an hour and nine minutes. Yikes. I do agree. As much as this movie tries to... I guess makes sense of itself and tries to make it important. And the reason why this conflict is to happen, it doesn't really happen until the scene when things, I guess, like you said, really kick into gear. Yeah. But even then, it feels inconsistent. The tone does when we get later in the movie because I don't know. There, it 
it's not organic enough, and it needs to be. And that's kind of that seems to be one of our big or running issues in this movie. Is it just it's not organic enough, right? And I don't really remember too many jokes being cracked when they were like fighting for their lives. I told you I had a problem with the Brachiosaurus scene in the first movie. And some of the other humor that does happen is dark, but even still, we're getting humor. Like Vince Vaughn says, um, oh no, Roland says they don't hunt when they're hungry. And Vince Vaughn says, no, only humans do because he's this crazy environmentalist. And uh, Roland's like, oh, you're breaking our hearts. I did like that. But mm-hmm. then immediately we hear mention of they're like, well, we didn't really want to go that way because that's where the raptors nest. And I'm like, oh, yes. I forgot all about the raptors. I'm excited. Yeah. But then they explain the raptors to us in case we missed the first movie. Yeah. Totally explain all the raptors. Yeah. And this is also kind of sad. I feel like I feel like we explored a lot more in the first one than we do here. Because in the first one, the main stars are the raptors and the T-Rex. Those are the those two are the main stars. We do get you know the bronchiosaurus. And we get um, a couple other dinosaurs that come into play um, in a couple of scenes, but for the most part, it's focused on just two. This movie kind of talks about the velociraptors and kind of talks about the T Rexes, but it seems to take a more general approach to dinosaurs. I don't know. To me, this is kind of like a little kid who's very interested in dinosaurs and they've got their dinosaur book and it gives them all the big words that they can't pronounce yet. And, but still the simplified explanations and all the fun pictures. This is honestly yeah. what this is. Yeah. That's a really good, uh, really good analogy for this movie. Uh, the other thing I forgot to mention is, you know how earlier you said nobody listens to Ian Malcolm, even though he's been through it. And that's something that really bugged me is they didn't listen to him at all when he comes into the RV and still they don't listen to him. And it's, I, I don't know. I don't think that's very organic either that they wouldn't listen to him at all, yeah. essentially. And then I'm also frustrated because we see uh, the leader of Engine, Peter Hammond, He's like, all right, everybody, let's get up and go. And nobody listens to him. But then they listen to Nick, who is a complete stranger. And I guess that shows their lack of respect for their employer. Yeah. Uh, that just didn't make any sense. I, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it yeah. doesn't make any I sense. I was very confused as to who Peter was. Mm. Um, saying his name, and I under, I under, I understand who the character is. But when I was watching the movie, I had no idea who this guy was. <laughs> And he would just randomly show up and say lines. <laughs> and I was just like, who is this guy? And I think one of the problems is we see him in the very beginning of the movie because mm-hmm. he's got a fairly uh, kind of a thick British accent in some way, kind of a snooty one. And he does look different, even talks different. And then when he gets on the island, he looks different and talks different. And so I can totally understand your confusion because when I watched when every single time I've watched this movie until right now when I had the subtitles on and I was just paying painstakingly attention to this movie, I did figure it out. But yeah, him and uh, Ajay, uh, yeah. Who are these characters? What is their purpose? I don't understand any of this. But yeah, I mean, I get it now. But your confusion is definitely warranted. Right. And I know that we reviewed, oh, what movie was it? I can't remember what movie the, what the movie was, but I know that we reviewed a movie in the past where we had talked about extensively the use of side characters and how um, 
how individual they were. And in the, I guess in the case that when the movie introduced a character, it set them up really, really, really well. And so even though we only get the character's name once, we knew exactly who that character was when we, when we looked at them. This one does not do that. That's why I was very confused on who Peter was because we'd only seen him once. He made a very insignificant role or made a very in, insignificant um, participa- participation in the scene that he was in, which made me completely forget about him because I felt as if, oh, okay, so he's just not important. Right. Come to find out, I guess that he is. Yes. Um, and he's not only that, but also Ian, uh, sorry, uh, John Hammond's nephew. Yeah. I didn't get that at all. I missed that somewhere in, this, in the movie. Yes. But I don't know. This movie does not, is, we're missing strong characters. And that's oh, yeah. one of my, one of my biggest flaws with this movie is just the lack of great, solid characters. They all kind of feel somewhat the same. So, I mean, I guess, so I mean, you kind of understand my confusion of getting Peter, um, I forget his name again. Uh, Ajay, Ajay, and the other guy's name. Those Roland. three. You get my confusion as <laughs> to so why I get them mixed up and forget about them. They are all the same character. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I all... do remember Roland's character. I remember him mainly, but the other two, they all kind of mesh together for me. Right. And pretty much from here on out, it's nothing but just giant action scenes. Yes. Yeah. And which is which just does mirror the first one too. Oh, yes, absolutely. I really loved the Rex silhouette against the tent. Yes. Great shot. Really terrifying. Although the exact purpose for the Rex in there, it seems to insinuate he wanted the snacks. Because she starts putting the snacks back in the plastic bag, seals it up, hides it. Like, that's going to do anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm like, wait, so nobody else is eating food. I think what was happening is the blood on her jacket um, was the blood from the baby T-Rex. Well, that... They really didn't explain that. Yeah, at all. I caught that. Um, because at first I because th- okay before this scene hmm. they're walking through the jungle and she brushes up against a like a a shrubbery a, a shrub or something, and some guy makes mention of hey your jacket and she goes oh yeah it's just blood from the baby T Rex. So um, you think the Rex was following them that way? That's what I was thinking. Oh, that's really. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I only put those two together because she had said. Blood from the baby T-Rex, and then next thing you know, in the next scene, uh, the T-Rex is there. I feel like that's a f- that's kind of weak. I do agree. It is pretty weak, the setup. Um, so, yeah. The only thing I liked is I said, yeah, that's right, Sarah, be afraid, you idiot. Yeah. Oh, I love the fear. Yeah. That's just because it's like, yeah, you see how this is not a game. Yeah. Finally, and I do feel bad for Kelly uh carter is stupid he let his friend die in the previous scene where they all bite the guy to death which is a really good scene Mm -hmm. and kind of brutal pretty bloody yeah i think that could give some kids nightmares but the one thing that i am frustrated about is uh, this scene really doesn't make any sense um for a couple reasons one how does kelly and sarah get out of the tent we see the rex pick the tent up with his nozzle and just throw it yes but they're magically safe also we hear the T-Rex coming, and then we, and then like Malcolm is like, oh, where could it be? Well, the very next shot shows everybody screaming and running, and it shows Malcolm from behind, and it's right in front of him. That doesn't make any sense either. Yeah. How did Kelly and, how does, how do they get separated? I thought they were all together. Peter gets separated from everybody. Uh, the guy with the trank, Roland gets separated. Malcolm is separated. 
that's uh, just, I don't understand how everybody gets like so separated and then somehow comes back to the same spot. Yeah. This movie is filled with a lot of conveniences. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're, yeah, we're about to talk about one. Yeah. And I, I do agree looking back on it, the construction building to the scene is kind of weak. Um, I do kind of see your confusion. I was a bit confused as to how, like you said, how Kelly and Sarah magically make it away from the T-Rex. Oh, that's a cheat. Yeah. Um, I guess I can, I can buy it, but it is very, you are very right. It is confusing how that happens. Um, yeah, I, I will say there is, there are a couple of things I really do enjoy in this scene. Uh, a couple of shots. The first one is it's a high angle wide shot of Malcolm kind of like standing in the middle of the camp with all the men just kind of sleeping around him. And then you hear the thump, right? And you see the water in the puddle before before the close-up. There's a, there's a puddle next to him, and you see the the water ripple with that thump. And then, of course, the next shot is a close-up on that puddle. I thought that was very effective because you know, if you've seen the original, you know what's next, and that's that the T-Rex is going to invade the camp. I thought that that was a... All, I thought, of course, the setup could have been better, but I thought it was quite effective in that. Yes, the T-Rex against the T-Rex shadow against the uh, tent side is awesome. And then the next shot I love is when the T-Rex raises its nozzle and raise, raises up and it has the tent on top of his nozzle and it shakes it off. And the men at this point are getting up and they're just going all over the place and they're scattering and the T-Rex roars. And then you see uh, Rowan come up with a shotgun and it tries to shoot it on the very left side of the frame. He tries to shoot it, but then his gun jams and he runs off. I think that that is a great shot. Um, but yes, I do agree. The construction is kind of... It's messy. Give it to me. Yeah, it's messy. It's kind of conveniences. It's, it isn't nearly as effective as the original. And that's, the, that's just my problem with this in general. It's just... It's not... It doesn't take its time to build things to the right amount of tension for it to be effective. Right. I will say it is exciting though. Yeah. Because I love the T-Rex chase. I love when they go in the waterfall, which is actually a scene from the first book. Uh, that Those bongos are back. Yep. <laughs> Makes me feel like I'm watching George of the Jungle here. Yep. And there's some kind of gruesome stuff when they're biting people and ripping them up and trampling on them. Uh, I did think it was pretty dumb when that like kind of hippie cowboy just because the snake went in there, he runs to the T-Rex. I'm like, I would have picked a snake over a T-Rex. And I lived in Texas. They teach you in kindergarten about snakes because there's snakes down there so you don't get poisoned or something and bit. That snake, red touches black, friend of Jack. So that snake was totally harmless. Yeah. That was the that was stupid. and It was good, though. He got ripped up. Yeah. And once again, here is another plot contrivance. Where the T-Rex goes away after he bites the guy, and then Vince Vaughn is like, he's coming back! And then it's Ian Malcolm who busts through. And I'm like, where did the T-Rex go? Yeah. Once again, the T-Rex, I doubt it would just stop and be conveniently that far off in the distance now, oh, within a few seconds. So I absolutely agree. It bugs me how the T-Rexes come and go in this movie. I absolutely agree. It kind of feels like it's cheating, the movie. Oh, it does. Um, because this is not the first time where we think that the T-Rex is going to come back and it's just somebody else. And the T-Rexes just are magically gone. Right. Because, because yeah. Yeah, and the first scene with the two dinosaurs attacking, or the two T-Rex, the two T-Rexes attacking the RV, we they walk off twice. And the first time they walk off, um, the dude in the, the high hide 
comes up, comes in to save the our people in the RV. Second time the TRS run off, um, in comes Injun. So it's clear that the T-Rex is the T-Rex is coming back, but at the same time, in this scene, it it I feel like it would have made sense for the T-Rex to come back, um, because it just had a meal, and that would have been the cowboy guy, a character who for whatever reason just continues to show up in this movie for really not much of a reason to my understanding. Um, but it, I I will say this that his death is really cool. He doesn't show it, but you see him. He gets grabbed by the T-Rex, and then you hear the crunch, and then the the water from the waterfall turns red for a moment. I think that that is very, oh, yeah. very effective. That was. And I got to say, probably the T-Rex chase and between the raptors, probably the best section of the movie yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. This this These next parts of the movie, I think, are very, very good. Um, I, and I do like how we're keeping up the intensity. The raptors, when Ajay is like, don't run into the long grass, and you see them just like streaming through the long grass, we finally get the raptors. It pays off yes, for it. Yes. There uh, is, love the raptor scene. There is this fantastic shot, once again, with that high angle, oh, wide yeah. shot, where the men are just running in a straight line, and you see like these five the five smaller lines mm-hmm. making their way towards the, towards the men, and you know what's going to happen. It just looks sweet, just having this raptor scene. Um, it's I, it's kind of sad though. It is pretty short. Um, I kind of wish it was a bit longer, just to kind of show them picking off guys as they're running through the fields and then just kind of falling down and stuff. But it is really really cool. And then right after this, Ian Malcolm and crew come up and they're like, "Wait a minute, we I know where we are. We have to run." And the, mm-hmm. they they end up being okay. But yeah, this scene is is pretty pretty awesome. And I do think it's fairly intense between the three mains between Sarah, Ian, and Kelly. I do think it is kind of funny when Kelly uses her gymnastics to kick the dinosaur, but I think it kind of gives the kids something to relate to and gives a kid a role in this movie. Uh, uh, the use of the kids and the raptors in the last movie was, I, I don't know, it really wasn't very good. I think this is probably better. Something else I do want to bring up is I think when Nick runs to go turn back on the power or whatever and radio in, that's very reminiscent of when Samuel Jackson has to go turn it on, except we don't see it, so it has to be Laura Dern. There are some similar constructions, and we get a Duex helicopter. <laughs> yes. In like a couple minutes. Yes. Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit here. I, I'm going to take the complete opposite approach um, in terms of the, how, the, how they use the kids in the two movies. Okay. I think that how they use Kelly in this, they could have done a lot better. Um, I don't understand. I guess I'm missing the significance of the the gymnastics thing. Um, I get that that's a character trait, and that it comes back later. You know, Chekhov's gun. But at the same time, you know, it is really stupid. That for in my mind, it just felt really out of place and kind of stupid for this scene to have happened. I think that the original utilized the kids a lot more, just in terms of their fear, and then them acting on that fear, um, just to get out. I I'll say this maybe it's a bit of a stretch for the original to have their kids survive like they did, um, but in this one I think that they could have utilized Kelly a lot better. So I'll say, but I do agree the the helicopter is kind of a Deus Ex in this one. Um, it kind of just shows up for some reason. Um, I, there's not much given as to why the helicopter's there. I mean, you just like Nick radios in. He's like, yeah. we really need help, and it came shockingly fast yeah that's what i'm thinking is that it just came way too fast i know that he tries to get to the boat operator the boat operator but for whatever reason can't get to him 
Yes. Okay. And there was actually going to be an alternate uh, ending, I guess you could say. But before I say that, I do want to mention how there is kind of this big character betrayal on the part of Roland the Hunter. Uh, Peter invites him to come and work at the Jurassic Park in San Diego. And he says, I believe I've spent enough company in the time of death. Or yeah, yeah, is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. Eh, I'm like, wait a minute. So now he has a heart all of a sudden. I mean, this guy doesn't really care. I mean, I know a couple of his men died, but we see how cold he was to when Eddie died. He's like, well, you know, whatever. At least he doesn't have this problem anymore. Right. And that line, I was like, really? I mean, it's it's kind of a good line, but it doesn't work with his character at all. So, yeah. oh, I, I agree. Whatever. I think, totally betrayed it. Yeah, I actually really like this line. But not coming from this character. Right. I mean, maybe if they used it a bit later, it would have worked a lot better. I think this line is very effective because of the situation that they're in. But at the same time, it doesn't feel right for him to say it now. Maybe later, but not now. So in the original script, the film would briefly end with an aerial battle with, I'm just going to call them the pterodactyls. They would attack the helicopter trying to escape Isla Sorna. That would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. That would have been a great ending to this movie. As long as the Malcolm and his crew didn't die. I mean, that would be far too dark for this movie. But no, that would be much more organic. And I don't understand why... This movie did, I mean, this movie went through a total of nine drafts, and it seems like they started out with pretty good ideas, fairly organic, and then I think they just kind of wrote themselves into a corner with certain things. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently three weeks before filming began, Spielberg ultimately suggested to instead have the T-Rexes, the T-Rex attack through San Diego, as he was interested in seeing dinosaurs attacking the mainland. And Spielberg actually initially wanted such a scene to be saved for a third film, but later decided to add it into the second film after realizing that he would probably not direct another film in the series. And the sequence was inspired by a similar attack scene involving a brontosaurus in London in the 1925 version of The Lost World. So to me, I guess... Spielberg was kind of drawing from the original The Lost World, but in a way, this is Spielberg wanting to make his own King Kong movie. Yeah. Or Godzilla movie. Yeah. I'm also disappointed that we don't get to see the capture of the T-Rex, because it cuts from Malcolm and crew being in danger, to them getting away, to Engine taking off, and they've already captured the T-Rex. And it's like, how did, how did that happen? Because that would have been awesome to see them mm-hmm. take down this giant T-Rex. We know that they could do it. At least we think they do. We do because we see them do it with smaller dinosaurs. But this is the big one. Like this is this is the mother in, in the series' mind. This is the mother of all the dinosaurs. So why wouldn't they show that? I feel like that would have been really, really cool to see. And maybe even make a bit more sense and have it a bit more organic to get them to the mainland. Because maybe if they ran this through... The original is saying, okay, well, how are we going to catch the T-Rex? Because that's ultimately what happens. And earlier in the movie, they talk about getting a lot of these dinosaurs back to San Diego. And um, Malcolm says, in the history of bad ideas, that one's the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing dinosaurs to the mainland. Of course, we get the T-Rex. And that's the one thing that they really wanted, it sounds like. But why? I don't know. I guess I'm just wondering, why wouldn't they show it? It just kind of cuts and it's, it happened already. Oh, I totally agree. And I really would have liked it if they kind of would have taken a more of a Star Wars approach, but not so stretched apart. 
instead of a space battle, this would have been like a helicopter battle with those uh, pterodactyls right above it. And then they could have had a land battle with the T-Rex, both happening at the same time. And then you could still kind of have a happy ending, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that would have been a really great climax and then a fairly quickly falling action and conclusion right after that. But for some reason, they have to tack this onto the end of this movie. And honestly, every time I've watched this movie, when we get to this point, this feels like a totally different movie all of a sudden. Oh, I absolutely agree. I will say this, though. Um, I think that this is the coolest part of the movie just because of the idea alone. Having a T-Rex running through the streets of San Diego, I think that that alone... There's a really cool shot of uh, the T-Rex after he escapes from the ship. Um, I think that that's a really cool idea, but like you said, it doesn't feel like it's organic enough to push it to this part of the movie. Mm-hmm. It feels like... Oh, and even okay, and even getting to that part, it just feels like it, it's just so choppy. Getting to that part because oh, oh. It, it's ridiculous because we see him flying away, right, on on the helicopter, he, uh, Malcolm and crew, mm-hmm. and engines is right behind him. Literally, it cuts to a guy giving the speech about... Peter. Yeah, Peter opening, yeah. Get, ready, get ready to open the, or uh, I think he's showing off the, the park there in San Diego and the zoo, and the T-Rex is on its way, and for whatever reason he's having it at night... Um, yeah, that was my question. I yeah. was very confused because I thought, so is this the exact same night? Are we supposed to believe this? They just captured the T-Rex, put it on the boat ASAP, and he quickly changed his clothes. Ian and Malcolm changed their clothes, took a shower, whatever, went and got her car. Yeah. Is it supposed to be the same night? That's I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. I really think it is yeah. because, and like you just said, it's... It's like, it doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. because they're back at the mainland. It's the same night. He has all of his business people on a moment's notice to do what? Why does it need to be that night? And I understand why it does, because if it would have been like three days later, that really would have killed the tension so hard Yeah, in this movie. I mean, that would have just totally killed it. But honestly, the setup for this is completely rushed and they just wanted it. A part of the movie, they just really sacrificed a lot. They did. It. They did. I absolutely agree. I, there could have been a way to make this scene even cooler in the movie. It, they did lead up into it. I'm not saying that it's a complete surprise that a dinosaur showed up at in San Diego. Oops. You know, um, they did set it up because they they've talked about this park in San Diego in the in the San Diego in the San Diego Zoo in that it's going to happen. All right. So we we know logically that. Um, not only that, but we also hear that engines just taking the dinosaurs anyways. We know logically that a dinosaur is is very likely to end up on the mainland. And so that is, this is no surprise. What is a surprise is, like, like we just mentioned, how quick the movie gets to it. Because it's just so choppy getting from one point A to point B. Like Once they leave Elan uh, Sorna, it's no more than 30 seconds. And they're already at the next place. It's pretty jarring. It is. It's very jarring because this movie, just like the last one, was mostly all... Once they're on the island, they're on the island. Yes. Or if they're flying away, that was it. But this one, no. they. It's very jarring. And I'm sorry, but this doesn't... I'm extremely confused. It doesn't make any sense. Why is the crew dead? Why are their limbs missing? Because I was like, oh, I bet the baby Rex got loose and killed them all. Right. No, we learned the baby Rex has already been stashed away somewhere. It's just the main T-Rex. So I I don't understand at all how nothing adds up. 
Oh, for, I, the, for the boat crashing. I agree. It's really cool to see that boat, that ghost ship oh, yeah. come in and break through the break awesome. through the arbor. It's really cool to see that, but at the same time, it needs to make some sense. <laughs> I right. mean, if there if it if there were more than just the T Rex on board, I would be okay with that. If they had a couple raptors on there, and that's why all the crew died, that would make a lot more sense. But in this one, we don't really get that. We do get uh, in the original. Um, we do have when. Um, Oh, what's her name? The girlfriend. Laura Dern? Yes. So when Laura goes to turn on the power, um, because Samuel, cause Samuel Jackson's character doesn't report back, we get the hand scene and she goes, right. Oh, you know, and she joins around and it's just his, it's just his arm. It's been bitten off. We get a couple of those here, but it's just not as effective because it doesn't make any sense. How do we get here is my question because oh, yeah. that they even said that the T-Rex was sedated, this is what happened, I guess, that they had sedated the T-Rex twice, realized that she's not breathing because it was too much of a dosage, so they gave her some more medicine to wake her up, but she's still stuck in the cargo hold, so what happened? I know, and we see, like, where the captain would steer the boat, we just see nothing but a hand yeah. clutching on there, and uh, nothing makes sense. Yeah. And one other thing I need to say that bugs me is, it really bugs me, how Ian seems to know everything before everyone else every time. Yeah. I don't know if you felt that way at all, but every time there's a situation, he was clairvoyant, apparently. He knows how it's going to go, and he knows how to get out of it. Eh. Right. No, I, I agree. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of issues with this scene that honestly should be awesome. But it's, yes. it's, it's missing something. Well, okay, and... I do like the Rex roaring, running through the city. It's pretty cool. It's a little funny that Spielberg has like Japanese men running in fear, just yeah. like in Godzilla. Yeah. And uh, again, once again, they do finally get the the baby Rex. And I, I did thought it was really cool how they were driving through the Jurassic Park amphitheater. I don't know how they even made that because they couldn't have built just a giant. I think it's a really well done miniature mm -hmm. would be my guess because no way they would build that just for like a five second aerial shot. Yeah. Anyways, Sarah asks more stupid questions like, where's the Rex? Is it still behind us? And then we see it right there. And also, I really had an issue with Peter's death. Because the music when he is getting eaten by the Rex is far too lighthearted and adventurous. For it, it, there's just like that's the total wrong tone, right? Uh, and it's really dumb when she shoots the slow mo dart. I thought that was pretty funny, and and then they've got the entire navy escorting the ship. Hammond is back preaching to us. There's those pterodactyls are pretty cool. Where have they been this whole movie? The end. Yeah, and yeah, this movie ends. Like I said, it's really cool to see the dinosaur, the T Rex, just kind of roaring into the skyline of the city. Um, do we, he, the T-Rex and kind of walks through and, and does this stuff. And it is very reminiscent, of course, of King Kong as like, you know, given it, it is really cool to see that stuff. But once we get to the end it, with, okay, with the death of Peter, this is where I was just sorely confused huh. because I had no idea who this guy was anyways. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know. And of course, until just now we're talking about it, that this is the, nephew of uh john hammond <laughs> yeah. and all this stuff and so when he died i'm just like who is this guy <laughs> <laughs> why does he keep showing up in yeah this movie? <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking and i wrote my notes like okay who honestly who is this man why does he keep showing up because 
it's he, he doesn't play a significant role for this to feel appropriate. He, this should have been saved for Roland, if at least. Yeah, he's technically supposed to be the main antagonist of this movie. Right. We get him. Him and Malcolm uh, have their little scuffle in the very beginning, but yeah, that is confusing, and then they kind of barely interact throughout the other one, except just to kind of put each other down and make each other feel guilty, like, look what you've done. And uh, yeah, Peter's just insanely annoying in this movie, and then he dies, but his death is I don't know. I guess we're supposed to be glad that he dies? Yeah. And, like, the music really doesn't work either, so... uh, it's whatever. Yeah, I agree. It, it, I don't know. It, there's something missing here. There's something missing from this entire movie, to be honest with you. Sure, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Lost World Jurassic Park? So, I've said this twice. I'm going to say it again because I think this is one of the biggest issues. The Lost World takes a step backwards when it shouldn't have the lost world jurassic park goes for this idea goes for this weaker idea of humans interacting with nature in the original it's more focused on genetics um and messing with that and how it's a terrible idea that we should even even think about messing with genetics because there's no reason for humans to have that kind of power right it's very clear very clear what that that move that jurassic park one is all about that jurassic park 2 on the other hand is about humans messing with natural habitats just in general which is a complete step backward because it's very broad and it is kind of it's very broad and it, uh, we did mention this it is interesting that the humans in this movie have all this advanced technology say till about the halfway point and it's clear that the technology although it does enhance what they're trying to do it is not needed i guess and that the more robust and um gorilla ways uh, are a bit more, I guess, they, they're natural. And this is why all the technology, when they re- especially when all when they released the dinosaurs in the camp, everything's just demolished, right? Um, I, so I, I do think that that's also a big issue. The tone is inconsistent completely throughout this movie, and it shifts so hard at times that it almost becomes jarring. Um, the pacing is, at times, just all over the place. I will say this... Um, I do like that we get that the as much as for as much as this movie does force on the audience that that being you know character motivation or just plot points in general. One thing I actually do like that it does force on the characters in the movie is for Injun and Malcolm and crew to work together. They are forced at one point in the movie that they have to work together to get off the island and survive. And I do really, really enjoy that because it kind of goes to show that human opposition in this time is not a great idea. We need to work together. I think that works. And there are point, there are parts of this movie that work really, really well. And that being, that being the dino, I would say this instead. There are parts of this movie that work well, but could have been done better. The T-Rex scene with the RV is a big example. The T-Rex scene at the very end is an example. The raptor scene. Uh, the writers, I guess just directors in general, they're highly underutilized in this movie and they could have been done better. But for what we get in the overall scheme of the movie, I don't think it's terrible. I think, I don't think it's great. 
I think that Jurassic Park The Lost World is pretty okay. Um, it's got some serious issues, and we've been very obviously pointing all those out. I think The Lost World is missing a lot of Spielbergisms. It feels like Spielberg didn't want to make this movie, but he did anyways. Um, it's got way too many flaws. It doesn't capture, it doesn't completely capture the magic of the, of, of Spielberg. Um, I think that it, this is, for his works, this is kind of on the weaker end. Once again, this is, and by no means a terrible movie, and it's got some great scenes, some great, um, yeah, some, it's got some great scenes. There was one thing that my uncle said when we finished the movie, because I watched it with my family. There was one thing that my uncle said when we finished it, and it was very interesting. He said that it's really cool seeing a movie that you haven't seen in ages. It's almost like watching it over again. The only scene that I remembered was the T-Rex RV scene. And that, to me, stuck out and was almost almost perfectly encapsulated everything I had wrong with the movie. Because the, because the Lost World Jurassic Park does not take its time to build scenes and make them as effective as they, as they could be, we're missing out on remembering this movie in general. Because to my uncle, he hadn't seen it in ages, which is fine. You know, not seeing a movie forever, you're not going to remember everything. But he said that the only thing that he remembered at all was the T-Rex, was the T-Rex RV scene. In the original Jurassic Park, there are a handful of scenes that I will always remember just because they are so effective. That being, you know, the dinner scene or the other T-Rex scene, um, just to name a couple. And because Jurassic Park The Lost World does not put everything together in this nice bow like the original one does and has some serious editing issues, you have some serious problems in terms of making a cohesive story. Anyways, uh, when it's all said and done, I, like I said before, it's not terrible. It's not. It, it has bad things in it, but it doesn't make it a terrible movie. It is still very enjoyable. It is still a movie that you can find a lot of enjoyment in. Um, not my personal favorite. I'm going to give Jurassic Park The Lost World a 6 out of 10. It's a mild not recommend for me. Just because it kind of doesn't capture everything that it thinks it does. The Lost World Jurassic Park tries to be bigger and better for all the wrong reasons. Sacrificing a plot for more dinos and bigger action sequences hurts this movie as a worthy successor to the magnificent magical Jurassic Park. The characters, which are too many, are mostly shallow, save for Ian and Kelly's relationship, easily forgettable and hard to care about. The screenplay spends more time explaining situations and character motives to the audience than it does actually formulating a worthy story. Honestly, this movie is fairly pointless. Nothing is really accomplished, nor does it add anything noteworthy to the universe. That being said, I believe this is a great introductory movie for older kids to the world of Jurassic Park. It's nowhere near as scary, violent, or even boring with the exposition like in the first one. You might jump right in, enjoy the dinos in action, and worry about any sort of plot later. Best described as Jurassic Park Light... This is a fairly fun, serviceable movie that serves as a fun afternoon watch, especially with your son or daughter when you've got nothing else to do. But overall, it's a disappointment when compared to its predecessor. That's why I'm giving The Lost World Jurassic Park 6 stars out of 10 with a slight recommend. I do think that you hit the nail on the head when you said that it 
it's a disappointment when compared to its predecessor. I but I don't think that the movie in itself as a whole is a disappointment. I don't think it's that bad. No, I wouldn't say that either. Like I said, it's a fairly fun, serviceable action movie that you could enjoy with your family. Right. Like I said, it's pretty much Jurassic Park light. Yes. It's really good for, I would say, introducing a younger audience. No, it's not a disappointment per se, but I would say as a sequel, if we're looking at it just as a sequel, then normally a sequel needs to live up to the first one, hopefully outdo it, like The Empire Strikes Back. That's kind of rare, Yeah, it seems like. But nevertheless, this movie, kind of like what you said, it's a step back. The Lost World is lost yes. in many aspects of its uh, structure and storytelling yeah. and characters. I was a little surprised. I didn't remember it being this way, per se. But like I said, slightly recommend. You you will still have fun watching it. Yeah. I I still had fun watching it, yeah. and I know I'm going to have fun watching it with my family and then with my kids someday. Yeah. And even though I had a lot of issues with it, I still did have fun with a lot of the scenes in this movie. And I, I think that that is also very important to throw in there, that this movie, as many issues as it's, that are present, it's not boring. It is still a lot of fun to watch. I, yeah, I think if you don't put on your critics' goggles, you won't really see as many of yeah. the issues with this movie because you're not... You're not examining it. You're just there to have a fun time and go on a basically a fun ride. I mean, it's a, about an amusement park in a certain way. I mean, the first one was. So in this, I mean, it's all about having fun. You're just supposed to have fun with this movie. Right. I do think it's important to read a quote from Steven Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg confessed that during production, he became increasingly disenchanted with the film, admitting, I beat myself up, growing more and more impatient with myself it made me wistful about doing a talking picture because sometimes I got the feeling I was just making this big, silent roar movie. I found myself saying, is that all there is? It's not enough for me. And that's pretty much exactly how we feel. Yeah. And uh, yet, like you said, it's almost like Spielberg really didn't want to do this movie too much. He got to this point where he was like, and then he's like, you know what? I'm, I love King Kong and Godzilla. I'm going to make that movie now. Right. <laughs> and right. it's definitely not one of Spielberg's best, not one of his worst. Yeah. But like I said, it's, it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's fairly right. mediocre. Right. If they would have, I think the thing for me, if to push it over the edge of a slight not recommend to a slight recommend, if they would have, like, I think you mentioned this, I think I, I forgot to, um, in my final thoughts, but if they would have done with, if they would have done more with show, don't tell, oh, yeah. it would have made this film mild, I would say, a lot more effective in, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. And that's basically just like screenwriting 101. Yeah. And it's very shocking because it's the same writer of the first movie. I don't know if he was burnt out. He had no idea where to go with this or what. Like, he does contrive some really cool action sequences, but he really, I don't know, something happened with him and Spielberg yeah. crafting this movie in between those four years who knows but anyways we will be back next month for jurassic park 3 i'm intrigued now that i have watched this movie with my ssg goggles i'm excited to watch jurassic park 3 with my ssg goggles and compare the two and then especially to the third one because we're getting dr grant back yeah we're getting uh laura dern's character back in a fairly limited way but nevertheless we do see the return of them 
Ian Malcolm is not coming back. We won't see him till this summer with the new Jurassic. I believe so, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> from if the rumors are true. But nevertheless, we will be coming back to you next month with our review of Jurassic Park 3, which I really enjoyed as a kid. So let's see if it holds up to the nostalgia test. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us on our adventurous review of The Lost World Jurassic Park. Uh, Make sure to stay tuned for uh, we have lots of Oscar discussions uh, coming up. And those will we've, those will probably be out by the time this podcast is out. So make sure to, if you missed those, go check out all of our Oscar coverage. We've got you totally covered at Silver Screen Guide. When it comes to that, we're doing our Halloween series. We've got everything explaining. We've got uh, guides for the Halloween movies so you don't get confused. And we're going to be doing all the reviews of those leading up to the new one. We're going to have the review up for Ready Player One. We're super excited for that. We're going to be doing Solo Avengers, which is coming out early now. So we do need to maybe switch the schedule around yeah. a little bit. Thanks, Marvel. Thanks, Marvel. <laughs> and we're in Cloverfield also surprised us as well. So we're going to be moving the schedule around a little bit. But make sure to stay tuned for those updates. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Sign up for emails. Uh, make sure to share with your friends. Like this. Share this. Uh, We love talking about movies. We want to engage with this, with you. Uh, We can't wait to come back to the world of Jurassic Park with you. Until next time, listeners.